Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. Okay, so Sam, today I have a clarification and something that I really enjoyed that I want to talk about. Great. And I want to make a correction to something I said on the previous episode. Oh, okay. You should probably go first. Okay. Um, I gave the Toronto Maple Leafs too much credit for having a Jewish hockey player. <laughs> what? Well, on last week's episode during the Shkoyach, I lauded the Toronto Maple Leafs for calling up a Jewish hockey player from Chat Tannenbaum High School. Yeah, well, and for those who are frequent listeners, Sam hates everything about Toronto and gave that reluctantly. Yes, and so I failed to mention, because I am no longer on top of the hockey world, as I once was, David, that um, the Montreal Canadiens had recently acquired a Jewish hockey player. Oh, I mean, that's not really a correction. You didn't say that they didn't. I feel like it was an omission that I should be responsible for. Okay. Yeah. Quick fact for people who, for whom the Montreal Canadiens and Jewishness intersects. Mike Brown is from Chicago, and his parents own a Harley-Davidson dealership. Fascinating stuff. <laughs> um, Dave, what's your, what's your clarification? Uh, so the clarification I had was last week on the show, when we were talking about the Canadian Jewish News, how they seem to have a lot more love for racists like the Jewish Defense League than they do for anti-Zionists like yes, Independent yes. Jewish Voices. And we also talked about how there was an action in Montreal against a Jewish Defense League event that was honoring this British fascist. I, I, I remember that. Yeah, so he was on tour, and he had a Toronto date right after we recorded, and there were anti-fascist activists there, too. The Canadian Jewish News put out an article about it, and in the article, they said that independent Jewish voices had organized it as this weird roundabout way of not having to refer to the JDL as fascist, because then they said in the headline— the JDL event was protested by anti-Zionists. And, oh, and, wow. Yeah, the uh, Independent Jewish Voices, of course, got in touch and said they did not organize this. It was all anti-fascists who had organized it, and they changed the text of the article, but they kept the headline. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just an update to people who are interested in what we were talking about last episode. I think this leaves us with a thing that you found enjoyable. Oh, yeah. So you might have seen this. It was an article in The Forward about the history of the modern Grugger. Did you see this? I didn't, but... We spelled Grogger and Grogger. I think you spell it with an A. Yeah. But most people on the internet spell it with an O. Uh huh. Just letting you know. That's good to know. If anyone out there is strongly in favor of A, like the Berenstain Bears, <laughs> let us know. And again, if this is the only episode of this podcast that you've listened to and have no frame of reference for Jewish culture, Gruggers are noisemakers that are often used during the holiday of Purim to blot out the name of the antagonist in the Purim story named Haman. Once again, we fulfilled our Jewish content for the week. Anyway, it was a great article. It went through a really interesting history of where that type of noisemaker comes from and how it ended up. David, where does it come from? Uh, it's really, it's, it's kind of a long story. All right, so just give me a quick piece of info that really stood out to you. Okay, so one earlier form of the Grugger was designed to be used in Christian churches during periods of mourning where they couldn't use the bells. And so they designed something to be used and they just had these large versions of Gruggers that weren't really that resounding, so they didn't take off. So you're saying that Jewish people then went into these churches and used them for Purim? No, no, no. It's just that's one of the ways that that design perpetuated itself throughout the uh, centuries. Okay, okay, okay. It was actually written by uh, David Common, who does Jewish public media. Oh, no way. Yeah. Don't you have a little connection to this yeah, individual? Was, yeah, we went to high school together. Nice right. guy. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. Great. Uh, David, if you're listening, hello. Oh, great article. 
David Svi, I'm sorry, if you're listening, great article, according to David. I think it's time to discuss what is on the show today. Oh, yeah. So for everyone who made it through the nonsense that we usually talk to each other about at the beginning of the show, thank you. We are going to talk a bit about the discourse that has emerged within Jewish media following Donald Trump's invitation to speak at APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, biggest Israel lobby in the United States. It's huge. And uh, we got in touch with Meirav Zunshine, who is a journalist who wrote an article about it in 972 Mag. We're also going to give the people what they want, another installment of Shkoyach, and we are going to be interviewing Sigal Samuel, editor of The Forward, about a recent article. So this is your episode of Trafe for the 20th of Adar 2, 5776. So it seems like today we have to talk about Donald Trump. Wow, David, I thought this was a no American politics zone. I, I never said no American politics. I just don't want to, unless we have something particularly important that we think is particularly insightful or new to say, there's not really a reason to talk about this stuff. All you Bernie Sanders supporters listening on the other line know that David wants to talk about Donald Trump more than Bernie Sanders. Okay, I mean, if there's Bernie Sanders supporters listening, I think that they will probably no longer be Bernie Sanders supporters considering how militant we are in support of BDS. <laughs> All right, uh, this is no longer about Bernie Sanders. David, what do you have to say about Donald Trump? So the reason that I think it's a good idea for us to talk about Donald Trump today is because Donald Trump has been invited to speak as one of the frontrunners of the current presidential campaign in the United States to APAC. As a quick aside, Donald Trump once wrote that he trusted Jewish people with skullcaps, I believe his language, to count his money. Just putting that out on the public record. Yeah, now, um, for those who are unfamiliar with APAC, Sam, can you explain a little bit? I can try to. So APAC is the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. It has been around, I believe, since about the 60s, and it is the strongest and largest pro-Israel lobbying group in America and, as a result, North America. Yeah, and for people who are unfamiliar with the infrastructure of America's Zionist scene, APAC represents a far-right version of Zionist advocacy, while groups like J Street, who are nowhere near as politically powerful, represent the liberal Zionist side of things. Now, they have a conference every year. And this year, it is taking place in Washington. I would presume that it happens every year in Washington. It is happening in the hockey rink, the Verizon Center, that seats seventeen or 18,000 people. Yeah, it's, it's a huge event, and they invite all of the political candidates each year. And so this year, that includes Donald Trump. And referring back to what you mentioned earlier, Sam, about the quote that Donald Trump had about the yarmulkes, some people within the Jewish community are a bit uncomfortable with his presence there. Yeah, and I mean, most people are going forward with it, but there has been an increased negative response from liberal Jews and liberal Jewish organizations towards Donald J. Trump's participation in this affair. Yeah, there's been something of an intra-community debate regarding Donald Trump's invitation. You've had on the one side, the more right-wing side, articles like in the Canadian Jewish News, there was an article saying that Donald Trump is not anti-Semitic, papering over remarks he's made in the past. And on the other side, you see in publications like The Forward, you have articles that are condemning his presence at APAC, urging attendees to walk out during his speech. So this isn't the first time that the liberal Jewish establishment has come out against a demon speaking at an institutional event without actually any structural critique of the institution itself. So we reached out to someone who wrote an article that contained a structural critique of Trump and APAC. We're uh, joined on the line by Merav Zonjan, an independent writer, translator, and editor who's had work published in The Guardian, The New York Times, and a series of other publications. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. 
Uh, we've invited you on to talk a little bit about the article that you published last week in 972. It's titled mm-hmm. American Jews Should Protest APAC, Not Trump. I'm obviously not telling you that. I'm telling that to the people listening. But uh, could you talk a little bit about that article and uh, what led you to write it? Sure, sure. Um, well, I started to notice a lot of um, hoopla on my Facebook feed and various Jewish American websites about Trump's speech to APEC. Trump has been making a lot of headlines, and so now he was making all these headlines in American Jewish outlets. I saw that there was a lot of outrage about his speech, um, and then I immediately thought to myself, why is there so much outrage at Trump and not at APEC itself? I mean, they've hosted Netanyahu so many you know years in a row now, and he's really awful also. So I immediately just thought, maybe this is a misdirected, misguided effort. So I wrote about APAC and what it's done and what it's about and how it's not actually that surprising that Trump was invited and that if people feel that their values are not being represented by Trump, they should take a good hard look at what values APAC represents for them. You know, I should note that there are progressive American Jewish individuals and groups who are protesting today both against Trump and against APAC. So it's not like black and white, but a lot of reform rabbis and more mainstream American Jewish leaders won't go so far as to out APAC. Yeah, I think to us in the Canadian context, this echoed some similar discussions that were happening here around the Jewish National Fund. I believe last year, we're supposed to host a pretty homophobic speaker, and there was protest against that, but there was no critique of the Jewish National Fund in that conversation. Why do you think that these conversations always have the same framing when they happen within the institutional Jewish community here? Right. Well, I imagine, I mean, from what I know, that Canada's Jewish community is even more narrowed and conservative than America's. Is that right? We're both smiling and pretty happy that that is how it's perceived outside of it, because both of us think that that's the case. But it's interesting that that is your perception. So maybe we could take a little detour and you could expand on that point. Oh, I guess. I mean, I've worked in the American Jewish community for a while and I've worked with Canadian students. And while Canadian students tend to be more progressive, maybe individually, I feel like the Jewish community, organized Jewish community there. My impression is that there weren't, I don't think that there's a Jewish voice for peace in Canada, that style of, you know, like Jews that can come out and say, I do believe in boycotting, but I could be wrong. So Yeah, I mean, there is a group called Independent Jewish Voices, but I think there's just this scale question. It's just not as big as IJV, as JVP. When you think about it, American foreign policy and foreign aid to Israel is such a huge, I mean, Canada just doesn't come close. Yeah. So on, on that level, it makes a lot of sense. But to go back to your question, Trump is a very easy target. So if you're an American Jewish leader or somehow have any kind of political ambitions, it's very, very difficult to protest APAC. It is one of the most powerful lobbies in Washington, certainly the most powerful organization in the Jewish community, but it actually doesn't represent the American Jewish community on a whole. If you look at the policies of specific organizations or the polling of American Jewish values, what I specifically talked about in my article is the stance against the occupation general notions of equality and and human rights. Of course, American Jews, when asked about these things, generally go against the policies that are happening in Israel. What they do with their day-to-day active involvement in organizations is a little bit different and a little bit more complicated. The problem is that the American Jewish organized world consistently has one policy, and American Jewish individual groups and activist groups tend to have another. And I don't really know how exactly to bridge that gap. But I think that with every year that passes, we're seeing that that gap is getting narrower and narrower. 
Yeah, you also in, in your piece, you wrote about how Trump's appearance at the APAC conference isn't particularly shocking or anomalous. Can you talk a bit about the ways that Trump's politics actually can here with APAC's agenda? Well, I mean, APAC is a very professional organization, and it would never, you know, have the same rhetoric. It doesn't have inflammatory rhetoric. It's really more about its actions and the things that it does. I mean, APAC's modus vivendi is to basically try to ruin careers of politicians who try to work against what it's doing. So it doesn't really need to talk the talk that Trump talks, but it passively and actively allows a lot of things to happen. Most blatantly, Israel's human rights violations in the occupied West Bank and the Gaza Strip APAC has no problem with this. It's never had a problem with this. And what's actually so ironic about the whole protest Trump issue is that Trump is actually not nearly as pro-Israel as a lot of the Democratic candidates are. I mean, Hillary Clinton, who just spoke there today, you know, and Obama, they are both very pro-Israel candidates. They haven't really done that much to go against APAC's policies. So if you actually look at what's going on, what's, what's kind of hilarious is that Trump if there's anything comprehensible about his approach so far, it's that he's neutral or that he wouldn't do much of anything to push Israel uh, or the Palestinians anywhere. So he's either similar or a little bit actually to the left of AIPAC in that sense, because he doesn't really want to get involved at all. So I, again, I think that the American Jewish organization against Trump is just misguided, because what's really at hand here is that there's a lobby that has been pushing for policies that apparently go against a lot of American Jewish values. And so why not put your efforts into putting them, you know, in check rather than Trump himself, even though that's also important. Well, thanks for taking the time. If folks want to check out some of your work, where would be the best place to find it? Um, you know, my blog on 972 is a good place to start. Uh, there's also a lot of excellent other writers on that blog if you're interested in Israel-Palestine stuff. Um, and if you Google my name, you can see a, a couple of things I've written in the past, also on APAC and on the American Jewish politics of Israel. So just if you can Google, Google my name. Great. Thanks again for speaking with us. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. Tradition. Tradition. It's time for Shkoyach. So welcome to Shkoyach. Everyone's favorite segment. Uh, so what's your Shkoyach for today, Sam? I think before we go into what is my Shkoyach for today, I think we have to say what is the Shkoyach. We have to explain it every time. I think it's useful. I, who The one new person who's listening. I know it is, but it's just really annoying to explain it every time. All right. So I'll take it on this time, David. Okay. Great. Okay. So Shkoyach is a conjunction of Yashar and Koyach, which is a Yiddish Hebrew derivative term of congratulations at this point in the show, we are offering people a congratulations, a pat on the back, a thanks for doing what you're doing, and then occasionally an anti-shkoyach, which, as you can assume, is an anti-congratulation, an anti-pat on the back, and anti-big ups. So, Sam, what's your shkoyach for today? I'm going simple, but technological. Technological. Okay. Uh, I actually haven't done a whole lot of research, and I know that you know more about this than I do. This is so strange. Yeah. But... Um, I was thinking that there's no other person or no other thing that's more deserving of a shkoyach this week than the entity that has occupied the most amount of space on the Jewish internet besides Donald Trump and APAC. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask if it was Donald Trump. It's not Donald Trump. The okay. second... Well, I mean, it's an entity. It's not actually a human. It's not... Okay. It's not a human. It is a robot. <laughs> now, a robot who I believe was sent on an undercover mission 
from a pro-Israel group called Stand With Us to uh, to a Hillel event yeah. at Brown University. <laughs> so this is actually all I know, that they sent some weird robot with like an iPad head to interact with everyone. And then the Jewish internet was ballistic. There were about 47 articles about the like validity of this robot. Um, there'll be some links to this in the show notes, but basically this robot definitely deserves a shkoyach. So did you read about this? Not at all. I read, I saw three or four articles. I read the first paragraph in each. My favorite part about this is that the original statement, I believe, that was put out by Open Hillel, which was this group at Brown that had the robot sent to it by Stand With Us, the right-wing Zionist organization, they put out a statement and it said they were decrying Stand With Us for their behavior and sending what they were describing as a drone to survey them. There was this robot that looked like a pole on a barrel on the bottom and an iPad face. And then Stand With Us responded and they're like, we didn't invent the robot. The robot was invented by this scientist who lent it to us for the weekend. How dare you accuse us of inventing a robot? And then Open Hillel responded saying, okay, you didn't invent the robot, but we need ethics and morals to guide us in this new technological innovation world. The funniest part for me is just why didn't someone pick up this roving broomstick with an iPad on it and bring it out of the room? Like they let it in. It was talking with people. Like it would go, it was controlled by someone at Stand With Us and it would go from person to person and just kind of heckle them on Israel. So wait, are you giving your scoyak to the robot? Oh, 100%. I'm giving my scoyak to the robot, David. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a very well-constructed robot. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know if it... Uh... The robot didn't actually choose what it was going to do. It was manipulated by the Stand With Us folk. So now that we've um, broken new ground at Trave Podcast and given a scoyak to a robot, I'm wondering if your scoyak can even compare at this point. I don't know if I can judge that. But my shkoyach for the week requires a bit of a refresher on someone that we talked about on a previous episode of the podcast. Oh, great. Bernie Farber? No, it's not Bernie Farber. Uh, can I take another guess? Yes. Um, the journalist from Illinois who keeps writing about <laughs> menorahs? No, although I, I apologize that I keep talking about the same journalist from Yo, Illinois all the time. David, I think we forgot to tweet her when we talked about her the second time. Oh, you didn't tweet at her? I was saying we because I was sharing responsibility here. But yeah, I don't think I tweeted at her. Well, you deal with the Twitter. Don't. Don't reveal state secrets over here. <laughs> oh, we should totally get in touch with her. Yeah, what's her name again? Nicola Fond. So it's not Bernie Farber. It's not Nicola Fond. Right. I really don't know who else it could be. Okay, so the refresher is about someone that was hired to oversee the expansion of what's called Hasbro Fellowships. Do you remember, uh, remember the story? Yeah, definitely do. Yeah, this guy Robert Walker was hired, and he's trying to expand Hasbro Fellowships all across campuses in Canada. And recently at a university in Oshawa, Ontario, called uh, the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, or UOIT, he had a bit of trouble doing this. So Robert Walker? Yeah, Robert, Robert Walker. Robert Walker of Hasbara Fellowship fame in Canada mm -hmm. is trying to start a Hasbara initiative at some school in Oshawa. Well, he applied for a table at the Student Association Social Justice Week. Ah, yes. Yeah. The old switcheroo. He was trying to promote what they called Israel Peace Week that was just designed as a response to Israeli Apartheid Week. Yeah, that was a big flop. Mm -hmm. It's been a flop for many years. So it was a particular flop here because right after applying, he received an email saying that since the Student Association recently passed a motion endorsing BDS, that, quote, it would be against the motion to provide any type of resources to your organization. Ayo. Yeah. So the Oshawa what school again? It's the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, or UOIT. 
But it's in Oshawa. It's in Oshawa. Where is Oshawa? Oshawa is in Ontario. It's not. It's, yeah, I it's, know it's in Ontario. It's not too far from Toronto. Okay. And the Shkoyach for today is going to the Student Association at UIT for not only passing this BDS resolution and staying within the spirit of it, but just generally being pretty great. I looked on their website and they had actually an event for Israeli Apartheid Week at this university. Their Social Justice Week programming looked great. And Robert Walker, in an interview he did with the Canadian Jewish News, said, what surprised me was the explicit nature of the denial. There was no fear or shame in actually saying straight out that because you side with Israel, we don't want to provide you with a platform. I think it was a total lack of fear that was most jarring. Wow. So Shkoyak to the Student Association at UOIT for having a complete lack of fear in standing up to the Zionist organization. And to Johnny Walker for being honest. Robert Walker. Um, for being honest, and also to BDS for continuing to make inroads uh, in schools across North America. And I guess to your robot. Yeah, are you saying robot on purpose instead of robot? Wait, what do you call it? Robot. R-O-B-O-T. Let's look this up. How are we going to look up how it's pronounced? Oh, yeah, press play. Robot. Oh. Thank you, lady on Wikipedia. Okay. Good talk, good talk. So me and David come from different schools of explicitness. I feel like there's actually some value in telling you, the listener, what segment we're entering in. And David's more of the performance artist, just like jump into the segment. I don't know if I describe it that way. The point being is that we have kind of in-house decided that this portion of the show is called The Interview. Uh, It aptly describes what is going to transpire in the following segment. And I'm actually really excited because this week we got a real live journalist from The Forward to talk with us. Yeah, we have Sigal Samuel, who's uh, the opinion editor at The Forward. Uh, so enjoy the interview. Sigal Samuel is an award-winning fiction writer, journalist, essayist, and playwright, currently a writer and editor for The Forward. She has also published work in The Daily Beast, The Rumpus, BuzzFeed, Electric Literature, and The Walrus. Thank you so much for joining us, Sigal. Thanks so much for having me. So, Sigal, we wanted to talk to you about uh, a lot of things, but specifically the thing that we brought you on to talk about was the most recent article you wrote in the forward, the headline, The Mizrahi-Palestinian Intersectionality Nobody's Talking About. And before we jump into the conversation surrounding it, for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the article, can you talk a bit about the historical context maybe between uh, Mizrahi Jews and Palestinians? Sure. So in this article, I really focus on particularly the 50s, um, when we talk about Mizrahi Jews and Palestinians having some kind of solidarity movement, a lot of people think, if anything, they think about the Black Panthers, they think about the 70s, but it even goes back earlier than that, and there's some really interesting examples in the 50s that I wanted to bring out. It also bears noting that that sort of solidarity wasn't just born in the 50s when people came to Israel-Palestine. There was a genealogy of that that goes back to other countries like Morocco, where Jews and Arabs live together. In this article, I really wanted to talk about how Mizrahim and Palestinians were working together. And, you know, they weren't using the term intersectionality then. That was coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw, a black feminist scholar. And because that word has funnily become a buzzword in the Jewish media in the past few months, 
it was really bothering me to see that article after article and op-ed after op-ed was discussing it as if it's some crazy new foreign implant into the Israeli-Palestinian context when I see it as something that has really deep roots there. In talking about the way that intersectionality has become such a staple of Jewish media articles over the last year, I think, uh, what do you think is going on? Like, why do you think this is happening in this way? I think that intersectionality really informs the way a lot of young activists, especially on college campuses, see their activism, understand their activism. You know, Jay Michelson wrote about this nicely in the forward, I think back in December when we saw this Example with No Red Tape, a group who is against sexual violence, aligning itself to be against violence against Palestinians. And, you know, a lot of people were sort of raising their eyebrows at this and kind of furrowing their brows. And I think Jay Michelson did a good job explaining there that, you know, it's not puzzling when you see it through these college activists' eyes. And they have this theoretical framework of intersectionality where, you know, you're looking at all these different forms of oppression as inseparably linked. They're linked both in their causes and in their consequences. So there's this this idea that sexism and homophobia and classism and ableism, all these types of things all prop each other up. So that's such a popular idea on campus these days. In fact, I mean, I was doing my undergrad at McGill not that many years ago, and I remember that it was such a ubiquitous concept that that's why I said a moment ago that I find it funny that intersectionality is suddenly a buzzword in the Israel-Palestine conversation because it's so embedded in campus culture that it's funny to see the Jewish media as if all of a sudden get wind of it. Yeah, I mean, me and David have talked about this on the show a little bit before where it feels like there was a paper put out by, I think, the chancellor at the University of California system talking about intersectionality in November, December. And since then, it just feels like there have been an innumerable... Uh, series of articles all across the Jewish internet. Yeah, and I think you guys did a nice job talking a couple episodes back about the David Bernstein piece and a couple of others that have been sort of in the ether since then. If we could move back a little bit, could you maybe give some examples of this history of post-48 Palestine that you talk about gets erased from the dominant conversation on the subject? Sure. Um, One thing that I, I really like as someone who is a journalist but also a, a fiction writer. I really like this example of the magazine Al Jadid, which was created in 1953 by Arabic speaking intellectuals. These were both Mizrahi Jews and Arabs who were not Jewish. They were publishing poetry and fiction written by Jews and non Jewish Arabs alike. And specifically, the editor said in their own words, they said that they wanted to shine a light on anti Mizrahi and anti Arab discrimination out of the spirit of establishing Arab-Jewish solidarity. And by the way, I'm quoting, I'm quoting that from Brian Roby's new book, which is called The Mizrahi Era of Rebellion, which you can find. So that's an example where you see very consciously they're trying to build this bridge of solidarity. You had other Mizrahim, like Gideon Giladi, who were <laughs> like a laser beam eye on what was happening with the Bedouin and the Negev and how the Israeli government was cheating the Jewish Mabara residents, but also the Bedouin out of medical treatment. And so he was protesting the mistreatment of both populations together. And you had a lot of Iraqi-born Jews, like Latif Dori, for example, who liked to speak of the two brotherly peoples, the, the Mizrahim and the, the non-Jewish Arabs, arguing that they should band together and form joint youth movements, cement that bridge, 
basically you had a lot of people, Mizrahim intellectuals, who saw themselves and the indigenous Arabs there as both victims of the waves of nationalism and colonialism that were sweeping Palestine at the time and that had led to Zionism. So they, you know, they really saw themselves as, as in it together. Yeah, and, and something that I found so striking about reading of the history of Al-Jadid was in the Ashkenazi Jewish left, there's so much canonization of the role that leftist Jewish papers played, specifically mm-hmm. in the period of time around the turn of the century, um, and also up to the 50s. And it's interesting to me that there is this whole parallel history here that isn't as canonized among the Jewish left as it's understood in North America today. I'm just wondering, you know, as someone who is currently working at a leftist Jewish paper, or at the very least a liberal Jewish paper, like if you feel a connection with that history at Al-Jadid. Yes. I mean, I work at The Forward, which, you know, very much likes to speak about this history. And it's a it's a proud history of progressivism in American Jewish communities. And that's that's great. I love to talk about that and talk about the Yiddishist history that was surrounding that. I think that what really, rarely, rarely gets talked about is the leftist trend in the Mizrahi world. And that's why I wanted to just mention an example like Al-Jadid. There was also Al-Mirsad. There were a few such publications. And we really, like, never hear of them. When I was in high school, I never, like, this was not part of the curriculum. When I was in college and I took a bunch of courses about Jewish history, this was both in Montreal and later in Israel also, like never, I never heard any of this mentioned. And it's only now, much later, that I am sort of seeking out that history on my own. And I'm really gratified to find that, of course, many Mizrahi intellectuals have come before and written about this in great depth for decades. And I'll just give a shout out to a few um, because it's nice to recognize the people who've done that work. So, of course, there's Ella Shohat, there's Sami Shalom Shipuri, Tzvi Bendor, David Shasha, Amog Behav. Uh, Jordan L. Grabli, Amiel Alkali. These are just a few, but there are there is this whole Mizrahi intellectual pedigree very much marginalized and pushed to the side. And it's such a shame because it's it's so interesting. And I think the fact that that has been kind of erased from most people's memory leads to some of the kind of very funny responses that you get when you're a Mizrahi writer who then tries to resuscitate that memory and push it back at the mainstream press and say, hey, there was this thing that you're forgetting about. We can get into that a bit if you want to talk about funny responses I've gotten to my piece. Yeah, what what has some of the response of the piece been? I'll, I'll take you on like a fun little trip through my inbox, which is like a very amusing place sometimes. I would say like there's maybe two major species of response whenever I write about Arab Jews or Mizrahi history like this. The first one, which is not worth spending more than 30 seconds on, is just a kind of triumphalism that comes back at you. So um, I got a couple of emails from readers saying, you should really compare the achievement in the last 60 years of the Mizrahim and similar groups in Arab countries. So this idea that, like, actually Mizrahim were not treated so badly. Look, they really flourished in Israel. They're really different from other Arabs. In fact, they're not really Arabs at all because look how backward these other Arab countries are. That's kind of straw man stuff that I'm not really interested in giving that much voice to. Um, I think then there is another type of response that I've gotten, which is substantive and comes from smart people that I respect. I've noticed it tends to fall in a formula. The first point is to say, like, 
I think we're, you know, romanticizing this. We're fantasizing a little bit about this history of Arab-Jewish solidarity. You know, it seems a stretch to say that this was ever a widespread thing. Maybe like two or three people over there were doing that, but it's really super minor. And then the next point is the person will go on to say, like, you know, my mom slash dad slash grandfather slash grandmother slash friend slash neighbor was a Mizrahi Jew and didn't like Arabs at all. And so there's that anecdotal bit that's brought up. And then the, the last point in the formula is typically to say, like, why should Mizrahim like Arabs so much? Of course, they wouldn't feel that solidarity. Of course, they would have antipathy towards them because, after all, we were kicked out of Arab countries. And, of course, that's true and terrible, and we don't want to paper over that, right? So, like, my family had to leave Iraq. I had to leave Baghdad, for example, under terrible circumstances. But I think there's a funny thing that happens with this sort of response. There's this idea that I keep running into that, like, yeah, maybe a few people were into that solidarity thing, but it was really not widespread enough to talk about. The thing is, we don't remember it precisely because that history has been erased, right? That's kind of the point. Partly through institutional Israeli state mechanisms, that history was stripped away from us. And yes, there are still Mizrahim who remember it, and there are scholars who are constantly trying to bring it back into our consciousness. But we've, a lot of us, forgotten most of it. And so then when we hear an example like, oh, in 1953, there was this magazine, Al Jadid, we sort of say, how nice, how quaint, but how rare. It doesn't mean much. I, I question that response, even though it comes from people I really respect, because it seems question-begging to me. Yeah, I mean, in the piece, you wrote a bit about the Jewish media's role in mm -hmm. continuing that erasure. You wrote, there's no way to revive something if you can't even remember it. And I'm wondering if you've seen a change in the way that Jewish media is treating these discussions. You know, I think blogs and outlets that are more centered in Israel, like 972, Haokets, you see, I think, more of this Mizrahi conversation there. And to a degree, it's understandable, right? Mizrahi are half the population in Israel. In America, it's much more Ashkenazi-dominated. But I think there's this huge surge of interest and hunger for explorations in the mainstream American Jewish media of non-Ashkenazi and non-white Jewish identity. You know, last summer, I curated for the Ford a series called In Jewish Color that's written entirely by and about Jews of color. And I think there's really a hunger for that. So I would love to see publications here opening themselves up to that. And I think they will only do that to their benefit. No one's going to lose from that. Just building off that, are there any publications you think that are having this conversation better than other ones? I think 972 has a lot of interesting stuff about this. There's a lot of Mizrahi writers pulling from Sikham Komit, uh, where you have a writer like Orly Noy, who's doing a great job blogging about this stuff. And Halkets, I think it's so exciting and lovely to see that they're publishing in Hebrew and in Arabic. You know, I find that a really encouraging sign. So those are some outlets that, obviously, in addition to the forward where I work, those are some outlets that I have my eye closely trained on. Um, I just wanted to mention something that was so serendipitous. I think literally the day after that article about Mizrahi-Palestinian intersectionality went up in the forward, I'm sure you guys saw news of this, you know, the Mizrahi activists who presented their manifesto uh, to the joint list calling for Palestinian Mizrahi solidarity. I hadn't known that that was about to hit the fan. And so 
there's something in the air. I think zeitgeist is not a very Mizrahi word, but essentially, like, there's something in the zeitgeist. Yeah, that was really great to see. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. I, I'm interested to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Well, Suga, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we let you go, we're going to leave you with a short recommendation that comes from our friends at Independent Jewish Voices. Yeah, so as we talked about in the podcast before, recently McGill's Student Society pushed for a measure endorsing BDS, and there was a large conversation about it at the General Assembly. It passed the General Assembly. It failed to meet a ratification vote online following this. But in the midst of this whole discussion and debate regarding BDS, there were 19 groups who endorsed it. One of those groups were targeted specifically by Israel lobby groups on campus and signed with inaccurate charges of anti-Semitism. This particular group was the Black Student Network at McGill, and Independent Jewish Voices put out a statement of support for the BSN at McGill. It's been shared widely, and Trafe thinks that you should check it out. Yeah, and it should be clear that we're one of several Jewish groups that endorse this statement. And one of the things that the statement makes clear is that the language of intersectionality that's being co-opted and being used to push Zionism is actually something that specifically comes from Black women who are describing their experiences, and that the co-optation of this language is itself deeply racist. So we have the full statement up at trafepodcast.tumblr.com. Go read it, share it with your friends, talk about it. Yeah, so that's our recommendation for today. Uh, we're actually going to be taking a break for the podcast over the next month, uh, so you won't be hearing from us in two weeks, but we'll be back again in May with regular episodes. Zygazons. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT, where we record this podcast under the giant cross of secularism, unoccupied Ganyagahaga territory. As always, thank you to Sax Syndrome, Kira Page, Claire Hertig for the music, social media consultancy, and design. Please follow us on your favorite podcast app and on all of the social medias at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F. And send us email with any comments or suggestions, trafepodcast at gmail.com. See you next month. I feel like I know that you've lived here for an extended period of time. Born and raised. Oh, what high school? I went to Bialik. It's all right if you want to. I went to Hebrew Academy. Hey. Um, the point of the question, though, was there seems to be a misperception in New York City about the tastiness of their bagels. And as someone who spent about a year and a half in New York, it feels like it's not even a question, the Montreal New York bagel one. The Montreal bagel is obviously vastly superior. Like a New York bagel isn't even a bagel. It's just a piece of bread with a hole in it. Yeah, there is no comparison. It's a genre error to even compare them. The true question is, what do you prefer, the saint Viateur bagels or the Fairmont bagels? Uh, saint Viateur by far. They were actually the first. I am firmly in the saint Viateur camp. Huh.